0: Our Lord took his disciples into Gentile territory, about 120 miles north of Jerusalem, into the region of Caesarea Philippi. This had been the center of ancient Baal worship. You'll remember in the Old Testament, the Greek god Pan had a shrine there, or several shrines there. And not to be outdone, Herod the Great built a temple in Caesarea Philippi, In honor of Augustus Caesar. You'll remember that Caesar, the Senate asked Caesar what they should call him, and he said, just call me the August one. I'm I'm God incarnate, is what he was saying. He imagined himself to be a god and to be worshiped in that way. In fact, uh, Caesar, though, said of Herod. Herod was building that to win favor for uh, Caesar, but Caesar said he would rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. He murdered several of his sons in his effort to keep the throne. He was a despicable man. But that's the region. That's where our Lord and his disciples are and where this scene takes place. Our Lord does everything with purpose and with forethought. And no doubt within the site of the temple to Caesar, Jesus Christ gives this, asks this question, of Peter, his first announcement about something that he's going to build. This is the place where he chooses to do so. It was not a new form of government. It was not a university or a medical center. He was not about to establish a new philosophy. He was not about to set up a literal earthly kingdom. At this point, his disciples fully expected that. They fancied themselves as being leaders in that kingdom remember their arguments about who would sit on his right hand and his left hand and their favor and so they were fully expecting him to do just that they were expecting elevated positions in that kingdom but that's not what is about to happen in this highly religious idolatrous pagan location our lord asked a piercing question to his disciples and it is this Whom do men say that I am? What are the people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Now, this is a test. Our Lord is not asking a question for himself. It really doesn't matter what the masses are saying about him. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows what he's going to do. But this question as every question from the Lord is very chosen, is very pointed, and it is for his disciples this is a test you might say the disciples final examination given after years of extensive you know in person observation of the lord's ministry and his miracles and his words they had lived with him they had seen him at work they he's just fed the thousands before this uh, portion of scripture and viewing miracles firsthand, the raising of the dead, the the healing of the lepers. And so in light of all of that, he asked this piercing question. Now, I'll tell you this morning, it is the ultimate test every human being must face. Whether they realize it or not, they must face and answer this question. The question must be answered from the heart and with a willing, loving mind and submission And is the most important question ever asked and that you'll ever answer. Eternity depends upon it. Jesus had plainly revealed to them that he was the son of God, the second member of the Godhead. He's made no qualms about that. He had just, as I've mentioned, fed thousands of people that a miracle, a creative miracle, no one could do that kind of thing. And he clearly claimed to be the son of God. He said back in Matthew 11, verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father neither neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And ye shall find rest and to your souls for my yoke is easy compared to that burden that you're carrying the yoke of in the burden of sin. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we compare scripture with scripture, as we must do when we study the word of God, that prior to this question here, he had spent time in prayer. The Bible tells us in Luke's account in Luke nine verse 18, it came to pass as he was alone praying his disciples were with him so they're they're part of this they're witnessing Jesus praying and pouring out his heart before his father and then when he ends this season of prayer he asked them saying whom say the people that I am the question had no doubt heard by his disciples alone and, and even though he asked about what people think, it's a very personal and private question. Each one of the sound of my voice today must hear it and must entertain it and must answer it. Actually, there are two questions here. In verse 13, whom do men say that I am? I'm am the son of man. And remember, even as he's asking the question, he's telling them. Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am a title The son of God, he's clearly pointing out the second member of the Godhead, his deity. I'm the son of God, the son of man. So even in the question, he's telling them who he is. In verse 15, he says, and what's more important, it doesn't matter what the world is voting on today. If there's a referendum on Jesus Christ, I'm sure across the world, he would not poll very high. But the question is, whom do you say that I am? If someone came up to us and asked us, who do people say that I am? We would no doubt think them that a very odd question. We might say, well, who are you? You know, am I supposed to know you? You know, some people have that attitude. Don't you know who I am? But in regards to Jesus Christ, a right confession of him, of who he is, is basic to salvation. There is no salvation apart from answering this question correct, correctly, not just academically, but there must be a perception of his claims and who he is. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation." Now, true, this is not just words, but this confession that comes from a belief, a persuasion of the heart of who he is, is absolutely necessary. One thing you'll see when you read the New Testament is that you cannot be neutral concerning who Jesus Christ is. Many people try to do that. They read the gospel records and and say he's an admirable man, a wonderful teacher. Some of the greatest thinkers and philosophers even atheists who've ever lived have said very complimentary things about Jesus Christ. I read a list of them as I was preparing. But that really doesn't matter, does it? Who people say that he is. 1 John 2, verse 18, little children, it is the last time. I want you to know this morning that we are in the last days. The last days started when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. After, all, after that, everything is the last days. But one thing is for sure, we're closer to his coming than any generation has ever been before. And the church age is called the last days. It is the period of time where Christ is completing his church. He tells us here, I will build his church. And during this age, this age of grace, some refer to it. These latter days, Christ is bringing together his bride. Now, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that antichrist shall come, and even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. And as the latter days come, more and more will claim for themselves such powers. They will claim to be Jesus and they will have followings. We're going to see that more and more. They went out from us, but they were not of us, these antichrists, for if they had been with us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifest, shown that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no uh, lie is of the truth. Who is of a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father... But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. And then in 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit. These antichrists with miraculous powers, believe not every spirit, but try them. How would you do that? How would you prove or try the spirits? There's one standard and one standard alone. No prophet, no one who's of Christ is going to contradict a word of this book. So you try them by what standard? The word of God. Well, you must know it to be able to try it. Satan is a great deceiver. He deceives the masses. Most people function on their feelings and what they think they see. I'm amazed at what people receive as truth. And in this day of computer-generated stuff, we're inundated with it every day. And I'm sure that you'll see things and you think, and my children laugh at me. I'll send it to them and say, is this real or is this fake? I don't believe this is real. Doubt everything. Try the spirits. Now, we may not can discern whether something's computer-generated or artificial intelligence or whatever, but this we know, in the realm of the spirit, there is one standard, and the child of God has no reason to be wrong whatsoever. We have the Word of God. Try the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now, John was writing, remember, he'll be soon on the Isle of Patmos, the last of the apostles. He's in his 90s. He's seen them come and go. And he lives in a day of emperor worship. Once a year, images of Nero would be paraded through all the provinces of Rome, down through the center of the streets, and people would come out of their houses and out of their businesses and bow and say, Caesar is Lord. And all who would not at the point of a burly Roman soldier's sword would be beheaded or killed in the street for not saying, he's not just saying that anybody who academically says, oh yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. These are people with a sword at their throats. No one is going to say that Jesus is Lord. He does not convince that he's Lord if a sword is at their throat or a gun is at their head. It is the standard. It is the basis of all things that we believe. Jesus' person, we speak of the person and work of Jesus Christ. His person is who he is, who he claims to be, who he's proved himself to be, his work, what he did. And the two cannot be separated His work cannot be separated from his person. It is his person that heals the thousands, that feeds the thousands, that raises the dead. He is God, and only God can do these things. The reason for those miracles is to prove and to silence the doubters that he indeed was and is the son of God. He did the the miracles that he performed and his great substitutionary work on our behalf, living a sinless life, Fulfilling the law of God in every detail, in thought, intent, and in uh, action, and fulfilling it, and dying in our place. Now, truly, the religious leaders of his day and of ours were confused and are confused about who Jesus is. In John 10, verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. He, by the way, had just declared, no man takes his life, my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I will take it up again. Again, only God can do that. No one can lay down their life and then rise again of their own will. But Jesus said, I'm going to do that. And so he's saying, I'm God and I'm going to show you that. The greatest proof is that I will lay down my life willingly and I will take it up again. In fact, Jesus dismissed his spirit at the very second that he commanded it to. No one can do that. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. He laid his life down exactly at the appointed hour that the triune Godhead had determined in eternity past. And, praise his name, on the third day he took it up again. Many of them said, he hath a devil. He's crazy. He's possessed. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So you see, even in that crowd, there were divided opinions. None of them, none of their religious leaders could open the eyes of the blind people. So they're saying no devil can do that kind of thing. And they were forced to make a decision about who Jesus is. Jesus presses his disciples personally and individually. And he's doing so just now. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, the pressure comes from the Holy Spirit to the heart of the hearers that this is the Christ. Wherever his gospel is preached, this pressing question goes out. Who do you say that he is? Who is he? This fount of every blessing that we've heard about. Salvation from him, glory and honor, The choir so beautifully sang or the center of one's joy. Who is this? It doesn't matter what the crowds think. It doesn't matter what your peers deem him to be. It doesn't matter what your family thinks of him. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? What do you think of Jesus? Who is he? What about his claims? What about his miracles? And what about his claims on you? If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself daily and follow me. The command of the gospel. The gospel comes as a command from the King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent and believe the gospel. That is a universal command to God's creation. If he is the Christ, he is To be absolutely submitted to and to be followed implicitly. You cannot be neutral to Jesus Christ. Please, if you're here today with that idea, would you take it and banish the idea? You may walk away from here not believing on Jesus Christ, but that is a decision. You have already made your decision. If you've not believed on Him for salvation and received Him for who He is, you've already decided against Him. You're not neutral. You're either saved or lost. You're not almost saved or not almost lost. You're one or the other. Someone has said to be almost persuaded is to be almost saved, but to be almost saved is to be forever lost. And some people come so near, they sit on church pews. They weep at gospel songs. They're moved by messages. And yet... They fancy themselves to be remaining neutral as to who Jesus Christ is. You cannot be neutral. And you cannot follow him with lip service alone. So many try to do that. Oh, they're Sunday Christians. They act apart. They assent to certain truths. Their name is on a roll. They outwardly conform. But it's lip service. It is no surrendered heart. It is no bent will. It is no bowed will to the will of Christ alone. Isaiah 29, verse 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do they honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. It's just a religion, it's just a right. It's just things received. There's no transformation of heart. It's no lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus requires more than lip service or head nodding or fond feelings for. Peter answers correctly and his great confession rings out through the ages. This man is the Christ. You're the Christ. I can see Peter, can't you? Impulsive Peter. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Thus, he's saying, you are the only savior in Lord. Now, later, Peter did not come to this conclusion by personal investigation. You'll remember that Peter wasn't seeking for a Messiah when Jesus called him away from his fishing business and commanded him to follow him. Peter wasn't longing for a new vocation. He wasn't longing for a new adventure. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He was commanded by, he met Christ on that day and Christ commanded him to follow him. His result is not the result of scientific method or of historical archaeological search. There are those who depend upon those things. If you could just find the Ark of the Covenant or the the cross, they go on and on about something that would you know, finalize their belief in Christ. That's not what Peter had done. This settled and wholehearted response was a result of the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. And that's exactly what the Lord says. You're blessed, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you. You didn't learn it in a class you didn't learn it in a laboratory. You were not on an archaeological dig, but flesh and blood is not revealed it to thee, but by my Father, which is in heaven. And so I will tell you this morning, this revelation must be a revelation by the Spirit of God himself. This was a gracious revelation from God. Oh, the grace of God that points us to the Savior, that shows us and crushes us with our sin and shows us the remedy for it. The Savior who alone can remove it. Now, the proud Pharisees and the other religious leaders remain largely blinded to this knowledge. They had the academic propensity. They had the prophetic knowledge. It's not that they didn't know stuff. Lots of it. They could quote volumes of Scripture. No doubt all of them could tell you the Messianic promises, the Messianic Psalms. They could quote Isaiah's 53rd chapter. They were well versed. But this knowledge that Jesus was the Christ was largely withheld from the religious leaders of the day. A fisherman. A tax collector. A woman at the well. A woman saved out of great gross immorality. The man at the pool of Bethesda. We could go on and on. Simeon, Zachariah, Joseph, Mary. These are not the religious leaders. They're not the well-schooled spiritual truth cannot be understood academically. Now, please be careful. We have a mind. That mind must be informed. We need to read and study hard things and to comprehend them, but the Bible tells us in First Corinthians 2 verse 10, but God hath revealed them to us the deep things of God. He's revealed them to us how, by His spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now we've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things freely given to us of God which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but in which the Holy Ghost teaches. How? Comparing Scripture with Scripture. Comparing spiritual with spiritual. But the natural man, the unsaved man, the one born in their sins and may have much religion and much morality, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The unsaved cannot. They may know Bible facts, Bible doctrine, may teach in a seminary, but apart from a heart work of the Holy Spirit of God, they will never be able to say from the heart that Jesus Christ is the Christ, his Lord. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness to him. Doesn't make sense. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned i'm very well aware of that fact when i stand behind this place week after week and open to you the word of god i realize i might as well be preaching at elmwood cemetery to dry bones if the holy spirit of god does not put flesh spiritual flesh in ears to hear and eyes to see our lord acknowledged himself to be the son of god whether you believe him to be that or not, please may I tell you that Jesus Christ said he was the Son of God. John 5 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Very clear. Not hard to understand, is it? John eight forty two, Jesus said, If God were your Father, remember they boasted when Jesus presented to his claims, oh, we're of Abraham's seed, we're okay, we're saved, we're Jews, we got it. God is our Father. He says, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. John 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. Jesus went so far as to say, if you've seen me, you know what God looks like. I and my Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, what a gracious display. If we would only had creation, we would see an angry God. We would think storms and famine and glorious things and horrible things in creation. Yet they do declare the glory of God, but we wouldn't get an adequate picture of God, would we, from creation alone. Oh, even the fool would have to say there's a God by looking at the majesty and the wonder of creation. And yet that's not enough to save And then the law was given to to show us that God's perfection and our sinfulness. But, oh, praise his name. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us so that we could behold his glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John 10, 37. If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe me not, though you believe not me, believe the father that you may know I believe and believe that the father is in me and I in him. There are many, many other verses. That's just a sampling of his co-equality with the God, the father and the spirit. Now, the next verse has caused some concern, some questions for people. And we need to deal with it, along with the great confession of Peter. He says, Blessed in verse seventeen, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven, this revelation of God. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The imagery of rocks is often used in the old testament, in thought and description, and often in describing God. And his strength, and his power, his might. Deuteronomy 32, 4 is a symbol of God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. Ancient fortresses were often built in and among the rocks to make them less accessible. And the safety of our God. Psalm eighteen, thirty-one: for who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock? Save our God. In the Greek, there are two different words used in this verse. You are Peter, the Greek word for Peter, Petros, a stone. And then he says, upon this rock, you're Peter, Petros, a stone. And upon this rock, Petra, large, huge, a boulder, I will build my church. Jesus had given Simon the new name Peter. Remember, he was Simon And he renamed him Peter, a stone. The Aramaic is Cephas, which means a stone. Peter will later write in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and confesses him as the Son of God and Savior is a living Petra, a living stone. But Jesus Christ alone is the foundation He is the Petra. He is the boulder. He is the foundation of his church, the rock upon which his church is built. Oh, the glorious church of Christ. Think about it this morning. All across this globe, there are people gathered in meetings just like this. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, the glories of our God and King. And our great Savior will be preached and explained and lauded And sung and gloried in. Oh, can you explain that? How can you explain that? All across the earth, the church of Christ is alive. Some are meeting in hiding. Some are meeting in perilous places and under duress. And yet, the church of Christ is alive and strong. Built upon the boulder, the rock of Christ. Of who he is. We read in our opening. Called to worship, an Old Testament prophet in Psalm one eighteen, verse twenty two: "The stone which the builders refused, he came into his own, and they refused received him not." The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner, the most prominent one in the ancient building. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, speaking of none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus said this of himself, interpreting those Old Testament prophets, as did the apostles in Acts 4, verse 10. And Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is to become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes verbatim Psalm 118 saying, this is speaking of me. Paul also stated that the foundation for the church is Jesus Christ. This foundation was built upon by the apostles and the prophets as they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. and It's being laid upon Today. As the gospel goes forth and his hearts are open to receive the Lord, as savior. The church is not built on a human being. If it were, it would have a, a shaky foundation, wouldn't it? Can you think of any human being you'd want the church to be built upon? It's built upon Christ himself, not on man. God would not build his church on frail humanity. Who could hold it up? The best of us are still just men at our very best. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Folks, my soul is leaning upon that this morning, and yours is too, if you ever hope to awake in heaven. He's our rock, our Savior and this is what Christ is doing today. No matter who's in the White House or in the Supreme Court or in Parliament or who's the richest man on earth, all of that is inconsequential to the fact of Jesus Christ's declaration. I will build my church. Whose is it? It's his. We bow an humble Praise and awe at our great Savior. He's the head of the church. It is his church. Oh, he declares, I'm going to do this. Do you think that all the demons of hell could thwart Christ from building his church? What government could outlaw it? And let me ask you, has any government been successful in doing so? The church is thriving most where it's most outlawed today. Praise be his name. I will build my church. It is his church that he's building And I want to remind you, child of God, he will complete it. He's the preserver of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The old spiritual says, in that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. In that great getting up morning, fare you well. Preacher, fold your Bible. Fare you well, fare you well. In that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. For the last soul's been converted. Fare you well, fare well, in that great getting up morning. I know not the hour, but someone will be preaching somewhere. The old, old story, how a Savior came from glory and died in our place. And the last sinner will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father will say to the Son, go and get my bride praise be to the triune god lord we praise you we worship you we adore the great god and our savior the lord jesus christ and lord as you've said i've come to do one thing to build my church may we be a part of it may we be active in it lord there's no perfect gathering of believers on earth today but we have a perfect savior and his word has been given to us is perfect. Oh Lord, build your church. And if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who is not submitted to you in salvation, believing on you, would you come to him just now, tell him your need for the savior, receive him to as many as received him to them, gave He the power to become the sons of God. Oh Lord, we rejoice that you've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. Would you complete the work that you've started? Would you do your work here at Glen Iris? Lord, revive us and use us until you call us home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.